Black women in the academy are not okay. Following Dr. Claudine Gay's resignation from her short term as president at Harvard University, we came to find out that she had received ongoing threats to her safety, including death threats. On October 8th, 2024, Lincoln University's Vice President for Student Affairs, Dr. Antoinette Condio Bailey, took her life after seeking assistance from her employer for issues around depression and anxiety. Lincoln University is an HBCU and was Dr. Condia Bailey's alma mater, a place that you would think would have been a safe one for her, but it wasn't. The attacks on Dr. Gay and Dr. Condia Bailey are further evidence of what Black women in the academy have been well aware of for quite some time. The world of the academy is not a safe one for Black women. This episode features two experts on this topic women with both research and lived experiences who can point to specific issues and calls to action as it relates to toxicity and bullying on campus and how it is impacting minoritized communities in the academy. Dr. Mary M.J. McConnor and Dr. Leah P. Hollis join me for this important conversation. Listen up. So I remember when I read the inside higher ed alert about uh, Dr. Candida Bailey, and I guess that she was called Bonnie by her friends. And I'd been in a, a toxic work environment at one point in my life. But when I read this and I saw the kind of layer of the the racial dynamic in terms of her president being a white man, as well as the current kind of tone and environment for black women in higher education. I, I, I looked at my own experience as a, as a white woman. And I said, I, you had it, you had a lousy situation that you had to leave, but you had a network that lifted you up over time. Like I had to start my whole career over again. I went from a director level position back to an entry level and just started all over again. And I know how hard that was, but I couldn't even relate to this kind of this sadness that I was seeing all over social media by people and how much it was resonating. MJ, when we were talking, you said something that said the Academy has failed us once again. Can you talk to me more about what you meant by that and and how that was kind of your response? And then um Leah, I'm going to come to you about what your initial response was when you heard the news. Yeah, I'll tell you all, when I first heard the news, I was devastated and I felt incredibly disheartened because for me, it just served as a reminder that black women are still undervalued and underappreciated in the academy. And I think what made it particularly difficult to learn about what happened is it was right on the tail of what happened with Dr. Claudine Gay. So yeah. like here you have it, the situation where the whole world, the whole world is basically witnessing what Dr. Gay is having to go through. And then a couple of weeks later, we hear about Dr. Bonnie, uh, Dr. Bailey, but I think a lot of people called her Dr. Bonnie and called her by her nickname. And it was just like the Academy continues to fail us or it, it and it's not just us being undervalued and undersupported, but also just not being seen. And for her to get to that point where she felt like 
that was the only option at that point. I just, I was, it just hit a part of me where I was just really upset. And, and I know a lot of people across the nation felt it. And and I think what was most interesting too, because I'm, I love LinkedIn, I'm on LinkedIn quite a bit, mm-hmm. is after that happened, the number of Black women in the academy who started posting about their experiences with workplace bullying and workplace inequities, I, I it was just like, wow, to hear mm-hmm. all of these different stories and to read all of these different postings. And it just goes to show that there's so much work that needs to be done. Yeah, absolutely. I think, Leah, you are doing work in that area. So specifically around bullying, tell me what your response was. Given some of my consulting experiences and what some of my colleagues have said, whether they're colleagues from outside of where I worked or even at previous institutions that I worked, I recognized her strategies to get away. Mm. She filed for an ADA. Obviously, she had some health issues and workplace bullying contributes to significant health issues that can lead mm. to an ADA accommodation, the right. need for one. She tried FMLA. That didn't work either. And so I wonder, is there an FMLA violation? Because the minute you bring up FMLA or you attempt to take even just talking about it and then you're terminated, that's a violation if I remember. So I was looking at that like she probably felt like, oh, my goodness, I'm coming back to my alma mater. I mean, she left New England, right, to go back to Missouri. Mm hmm. And her own alma mater didn't hear her. Right. And I know so many women and women of color who say the same things. Nobody's listening to my expertise, my my knowledge, or my pain. Right. And I felt so sad that this young woman thought the only escape was through suicide. Mm -hmm. And in the data collections that I've done over the last 12 years, 15 years, at least one person, which is one too many, will comment, I have considered suicide or I know of somebody who is considered suicide because I'm being bullied or they're being bullied. You both touch on something about being seen and about being valued and and what that means and and MJ you do consulting you go into spaces on on the regular now you came out of the academy you made sure that your your academy adjacent if you could say that is this an atypical response i mean based on what i i mean what even i saw on social media within my my network there is that a very i, I think i saw it several times that people posted black women are not okay Black women are not right. doing okay right now. It was this, a, so so I can't imagine that this is a surprise in terms of what you were hearing. Tell me, tell me about that. Unfortunately, it, for it to get to that point, it was a little bit surprising. But at the same time, I recognize just basically, basically what you just said is that there's so many women who have had this experience in the academy that it wasn't surprising at the same time. Uh, as a consultant, I have the opportunity to work with different higher education institutions across the nation and corporations and some other organizations as well. But one common theme that you find in the academy quite often is that you hear women of color 
especially black women who have very similar stories. It's usually around being underpaid, underappreciated, having to take on extra work compared to some of their counterparts, right? Because they're expected to serve in these mentor capacities for students. And it's just so much and all of that basically compounds and it just becomes overwhelming. Mm -hmm. And when you do tell folks that it's overwhelming, right? You might tell a supervisor or even someone at the executive level, oftentimes it's just like, well, this is the job. Mm -hmm. And so you hear a lot of organizations talk about well-being and psychological safety, but I don't know if many organizations are truly putting it into practice in the way it needs to be done. Right. Um, right. Just, just based on the experiences that we're seeing. Right. And, and the experiences that you're seeing does have a direct relationship to what Leah's been doing her research on. And Leah, you, when we were prepping for this show, you were explaining to me about what's legal in terms of bullying. Can you, can you tell the listeners what's legal as far as all of this and why it's, it's so damn frustrating. <laughs> sure. Title VII was passed in 1964 as so a civil rights legislation, and it prohibits harassment and discrimination based on protected class, race, age, gender, ethnicity, religion, disability, etc. So if you abuse or harass somebody because of their protected class status, they can take that action alone and go to the EEOC and trigger an investigation and try to find relief. However, if the same behavior happens, regardless of protected class status, then that person, that target, does not have nearly as much legal room to take action. The only place where that happens is the territory of Puerto Rico. They passed a bill in August 2020 that says workplace bullying is actionable alone. Now, if somebody files a complaint, a good faith complaint, that they are facing discrimination or they're facing harassment or what have you, and then they face bullying, that bullying behavior can be mm-hmm. categorized as retaliation, which is the largest EEOC complaint area. But okay. that means you have to file a complaint first and still access it through the protected mm-hmm. class statute. Mm-hmm. Other countries, Canada, Scandinavian countries, France, South Africa, even Turkey, Australia, these places have bills that said harassment of any type is actionable alone. Mm. And so what we're seeing is that, wow, so do you, you have to really point to a discriminatory animus to complain and then underneath it, then workplace bullying because something that the courts look at, but you just can't go forward, at least in the United States. In the other parts of the United States outside of Puerto Rico, right, you have to be able to point to something that falls under Title Seven. Mm-hmm. There are so many things that that reminds me of. So whether it be about how our campuses manage sexual assault and sexual violence, um, how uh, it out how in any environment someone is the the uh. The, on the receiving end, end of domestic violence or stalking, there's all these things where the person who is being victimized needs to be the one to make that first move in an extraordinarily, in my mind, public way, okay? And it almost sends up a flare like, okay, now come at me. 
Am I am I over exaggerating on this, Leah? No, no. I mean, think about it. The person who is being harassed or bullied or whatever, so they're already under a great amount of stress. Mm-hmm. And now, instead of the organization really honoring whatever mission statements we have, and let's face it, in higher education, we have these lovely mission statements about collaboration and diversity and belonging and all that, right? But when you're bullied, you don't feel any of that. Mm-hmm. So now the target has to mount up even more energy and finances to mm-hmm. fight this battle and fight an uphill battle because the laws in the U.S. don't support bullying prevention. Mm-hmm. So it's it's really difficult. And sometimes people just leave. Yeah. Well, and I think going off of MJ was talking about her her work with minoritized faculty and minoritized folk. Last year on the show, we had a couple of wonderful folks, um, Dr. Raquel Wright-Mayer from Rowan University and Dr. Delma Ramos from UNC Greensboro. And they wrote this fantastic piece and they were talking about the the how minoritized tenure track faculty have to navigate these ridiculous leaps and bounds that just how the tenure process is set up means that where you publish is like put into these categories of, well, is that, is that journal? And this is my words, not their words or, or the tenure uh, committee words, but is that in that a category of journals that was determined 50 years ago by a room of white guys to say yeah. these are the ones that matter versus here is the journal that is maybe the pinnacle of your discipline. Mm-hmm. Okay. Instead of saying what is considered the pinnacle of your discipline, which these minoritized faculty are oftentimes publishing into, but they don't make that cut in terms of the top tier of these places. So now you've got a community. Let's, let's turn our attention to the black women, especially the black women faculty for a hot second. Then we'll go to black women administrators and then we'll go to wherever we we go. But we have this group of folks who have committed to a life in the academy who have to jump through hoop after fiery hoop after fiery hoop chased by a tiger they finally make it through that in itself positions them in a space of, as, as you said earlier, MJ, like have to try harder to get just the same distance as someone else. And then there is a determination that they are either less than they are othered in some way. They are spoken over in in faculty meetings. Whatever the case, there's all kinds of things that could be happening. Then pile on to that, the SCOTUS decision this summer that says affirmative action in higher education is gone. So now every black woman, I think every black person, but every black woman academician is going to have a little little name tag on that says, I don't necessarily belong here in the eyes of others. And that gives people that idea of if I don't have to worry about bullying as being something that is illegal, Mm -hmm. here's a, here's an opportunity and we're seeing it in real time. Mm -hmm. We are seeing it in real time. We are. 
the, when you look at all of this and you consider this and, and something you said, Leah, about like, well, the law is there and the law, it's always about the law. Like, well, what's, is it illegal? No, not illegal. But when has it become the cultural issue that drives people from coming to the academy? Mm-hmm. Your statement earlier, we have these wonderful mission statements and value statements about how <laughs> we're committed to all of the word salad of diversity. Until actions happen, it means nothing. So in both of your cases, how much exposure have you had to maybe analyses of culture on campuses? And are there good practices to improve culture? Or where are you seeing people or campuses say, you know what? We're just going to we're just going to move through it. We're going to let the HR process run its course. And maybe we'll we'll get to the end. Am I making sense? So why don't we start with Leah and then we'll go to, to MJ. It's interesting what you say about the HR process. HR can only do what the executives charge them to do. In workplace bullying literature, HR is vilified. Oh, I went to HR. It got worse. I went to HR and the bully ramped up. Well, mm-hmm. that's because I did, I did a book a couple of years ago, HR Perspectives and Vulnerable Populations. Well, HR is saying themselves. I surveyed 215 HR professionals across the country, and they said, it's not a priority. My VP or president or cabinet level position has not made this a priority. Training on pro- prohibiting bullying is not mandatory. We don't even care if we have a policy. HR is just an employee like everybody else. Mm-hmm. In fact, several HR practitioners came back and say, I'm bullied and what am I supposed to do because we don't have policies. Mm-hmm. So a way to really manage the culture is for everybody to come together and say, we're not allowing bad behavior, incivility, disrespectful behavior. And you create policies and practices and hold each other accountable. It's great mm. to have a policy, mm. but as judge once told me, it's not about the policy. It's about the people who have to execute the policy. And mm. if the people don't care, you can have as many policies as you want. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So they can HR have a well-informed or well-intentioned policy, but if the process sucks, you got nothing. Correct. All right. Go ahead, MJ. I I was just going to add to that because I was thinking about HR during (laughs) one point of the conversation and then you brought it up. I was like, ah, there we go. Because I think a lot of women, a lot of black women in in particular who have gone to HR have found a similar experience of, yep, I felt like I did not get through to them at all. And then they come to this realization that HR is there to protect the institution, right? And not so much the the employees in the same way. And so that's why I think it's really important too, just to kind of add on to what Leah said, is that it's important sometimes to have an outside organization. So like a consultant or or someone who does assessments to really come in and assess the culture as well. Because if you're deep in the culture, it's really hard to do an assessment where you're objective and looking at things from a a lens that you can only see it from if you're outside of the institution as Mm -hmm. well. So equity audits, climate assessments are all very important as a starting point in order to get like an accurate assessment. Absolutely. We we had a guest previously this season 
that was doing a this we were talking about crisis communication hmm. and that's his background and he goes you need someone to come in and do an audit because everybody thinks what you're doing is fine and you know that but that goes for everything you can it's funny that we will spend money on bringing in Leah you're at the Penn State University <laughs> we will bring in a marketing person and and, and do a a huge consulting job on this and they just added a the in front of the name we spent a shit ton of money and that's where we're at where what we don't do is oftentimes spend the time and the money bringing in there are experts in this who can tell you look here's where your red flags are there's where your yellow flags are these, oh, goody, you have some green ones. Let's lean into this and see what we can do to get you more green ones. Mm-hmm. Why do you think that institutions don't want to spend money? And this goes to both of you. Why do you think they don't want to spend money on the hard stuff? And they rather spend the money on the marketing and on the greenscape and on hiring an architect to build a, a lazy river on campus. Why Why is it that the, the culture, if what we value is diversity, if what we value is bringing in new voices and broader voices, if what we value is a public good, will we ever be able to actually reach that public good keeping our business practices the way they are now? Why won't we spend the money? Well, a lot of it has to do with folks being resistant to change. And as much as we say, oh, we're evolving, we're we're trying to keep up with the needs of the shifting demographic and everything like that, we're seeing it now in our society, how people are becoming more and more resistant to certain things, right? So we're seeing this, this rise of anti-DEI rhetoric and among other things, because change is scary for a lot of folks. And I think what a lot of people are realizing when we do implement these different uh, DEI policies and we put things into place so that we are becoming more culturally inclusive and welcoming is that, oh, this means we actually have to, to do put work into this, right? And so the reality, I think, for a lot of organizations is that they're still trying to figure out, well, if we make these changes, how do we not lose who we are and who we've always been? Right. Mm -hmm. And if we're going to truly be inclusive, especially for black women and folks with minoritized identities, then we have to be serious about implementing implementing necessary changes. So we Mm -hmm. have to get beyond that fear and resistance to change. Mm. Leah, I mean, yeah, Leah, as I'm going to you for this, I do want to tag something you brought up with me was this idea of what is called organizational betrayal. Because I think it's directly related to this and that when we don't spend the money on something, we don't get it. And and you talked about it earlier that Dr. Bonnie went back to her alma mater uh, to go work in a place that was supportive of her as a, as a student. I said this to you when we were aware of this, and I've said this before to people, working for your alma mater is sometimes like going to Disney World to work and finding out the guy in the in the Mickey Mouse suit is an asshole. I mean, it is not always pretty. But that being said, and all joking aside, institutional betrayal is real. 
And this connected to what MJ was just saying, I think has a lot of, of value. Talk to us about organizational betrayal and how that impacts how we actually look at what, what how we feel when the institution does not value black voices, does not value the employees. Sure. I think the reason we don't spend money on this is because to look at workplace bullying and other organizational issues means looking at the people. Mm. And we as academics really don't want to turn the lens on ourselves to say, oh, yeah, so-and-so is a problem. This and that is a problem. We kind of want to just gloss over it. And that does dovetail into organizational betrayal because it's people who run the processes. Organizational behavior betrayal, I'm sorry, comes from Jennifer Fried's shop. She just retired from University of Oregon, a psychologist out there, and I believe she has her own center. In short, what it means is we in these different organizations rely on our place of employment for our salary, right, which provides our home, our car, our food, education. We are truly dependent on that organization, But then if our safety is at risk and the organization does nothing, we now have to decide, are we going to rupture that very tender relationship with our livelihood to stand up for our rights? And so the organization betrays its employees or its students when something wrong or bad or hurtful or damaging has happened to one of someone in their community and that organization stands mute or says nothing or does nothing. Because we look to the organization to be those things because we're in this relationship with it that provides our sustenance and our livelihood. Mm -hmm. And so the people in those organizations need to recognize that, yeah, if there's a complaint, somebody's coming to you. It's not like everybody wakes up in the morning and says, hey, I'm going to complain against my boss. Oh, I can't wait to sue my boss. I don't, nobody takes a job thinking that. So somebody has the courage after what we know about HR needs to be charged and often is helpless themselves after Mm -hmm. what we know about, wow, the organization is funding my life, my -hmm. job, my car, my, my student loans, and you're still going to complain. It must be serious to, to risk that rift with the organization that literally is feeding you're biting the hand, but you have to, If the hand is not taking care of you, you have to do something or you leave. Mm. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. And and just to add a follow-up to what you just said, because this is very, I wrote down Jennifer Friedship's name and everything. I was like, oh, I need to do more research on this. But I think what makes this particularly interesting too is because not only was it Dr. Bonnie's alma mater, but it was a historically Black university, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think there's this perception of, Oh, HBCUs are welcoming of all black faculty, staff, administrators, where we still see a lot of the same issues in HBCUs as well. So I think that adds a different element to it as well. When you think about that organizational betrayal, it's like not only was I betrayed by my alma mater, but I was betrayed by an organization that's an HBCU that's designed for black people to succeed. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that adds an interesting element to it as well. Sure. There are several studies in which women in HBCUs comment that, okay, Black women so often are asked to choose, am I Black or am I a woman? You know, that book, Some of Us Are Brave from the 80s. And so at HBCUs, not all of them, but enough of them, women end up choosing the race card and have to deny the gender piece. And therefore, 
get higher course loads, get more service obligations, more advising, be less pay, and mm-hmm. often treated very poorly. And the history goes back, oh, at least 50, 75 years, recounting those stories about how Black women are underappreciated, even at home at an HBCU. Not always, think- but enough. <laughs> I'm so glad you brought that up because I think when I look at, if we shift our attention to President Gay or former President Gay at Harvard, one of the things that came out of the, that just disastrous situation in front of the House, okay, the the three presidents, three women presidents brought down to D.C. to speak in front of the House of Representatives in front of this committee on what was happening regarding anti-Semitism on their campuses. Do I think that all of the things were said artfully and perfectly? No, that we're going to put that aside for right now. But we are going to say this is that, number one, when I saw the three of them sitting there, I'm like, we could have brought in a whole bunch of other men, but we've decided we're going to bring in women. Okay, so this was the decision and you can't you will never convince me it was not an intentional decision. And it was a woman who came after them from the stand. It was a congresswoman who ripped them to shreds. That's right. And what I think is people's bias from a gender standpoint is that women are caring, sharing, and validating. We are more empathetic. We are people who are going to want to wrap wrap our arms around you and make you feel better and all that kind of thing because that's the, the, the mushy female thing. None of these women looked mushy. None of them looked caring, sharing, validating. They were overly prepared by lawyers, which that, again, is a whole other show about rather than let them just speak their truth, we are putting words in their mouth that they are being told, okay, you're going there and saying that. All of that said, there was a dis- there was a laser beam on President Gay of this is going to send a message. She is nary six, not even six months into her, her, her leadership stint and gone. And we know now, and I'll put a, a link to this in the show notes, that there is a, an, a, a orchestrated and very intentional attack happening on diversity, equity, inclusion in higher education and other spaces. And Claudine Gay was the, 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 first, the, 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 the first major blow. When I see that and I saw that in juxtaposition to Dr. Bonnie and what Dr. Bonnie's, how Dr. Bonnie's life ended, and then I saw the responses and the lived experiences that my friends and my colleagues and people I love are sharing, Black women administrators and Black women leaders in the academy are regularly not only bullied, but have death threats and other threats of violence lobbed at them. Not only, MJ, to use your words, has the academy failed them, but what have we done within our space that has said, you know what, black women are, are, it's open season on them. What have we done to create this overall environment? I'm opening that up to either of you who would like to to answer. Do you mean what have we done to create the environment or what 
can we do to make the environment safe? I, I want to follow. I think it's a little bit of both, right? Mm-hmm. So how has the academy just said, we're going to keep, we, we're open, we're going to bring people in, we're going to do this, but we're not going to do anything to make this a, a, a an environment that's going to protect our staff and our, our administrators. And then I think on the other side is what can we, okay, now that we can make a, a understanding that this is a reality, what do we have to do to potentially fix the problem? So take it wherever you want to go. I do think there's something about executive leadership that can reach out when women, not just black women, but anybody faces death threats. Mm. I have worked at an institution where I received death threats and that executive institution did absolutely nothing. It was whatever. I've been at other institutions or have consulted with other institutions that the minute somebody gets such a threat, there's almost a wraparound service around, do you need any mental health support? Do you need some days off? Do you need remote? I'm here if you need anything. And once again, this is about people. The two institutions I'm comparing, the one I consulted with and where I received death threats, it's not like there was a policy at either. This is how we handle it when your faculty receive death threats. It was the people who decided, I'm going to take care, care with this person. They're not just an assistant or non-tenured or whatever, assistant director or executive director. This is a human being who's been hurt in conjunction with their work for us. The Mm -hmm. other institution, those people, even though executives, decided to reach out to the colleague who was hurt and say, if you need anything, here's my cell number. We are Mm -hmm. here for you. Now, you can't control all the death threats. I mean, especially in this space where DEI is being pulled back and just Mm -hmm. being on a website, especially at a public institution, who knows what somebody will pick up and write your faculty or write the DEI people. That part you can't control. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But you can control your response as human beings in the C-suite. It means a lot when your provost or your dean reaches out and says, I understand you're hurt. Is there anything I can do? Versus the other institution where they're like, oh, you got death threats? Well, that stinks. Next. It's a people thing. People have to care. Yeah. And they have to actually take into account someone's lived experience as being valued, valuable right. and and actually acknowledge it. Mm-hmm. Uh, absolutely. MJ, what are your thoughts? You know what? I'll add on to that because I know we talk about leadership a lot, but sometimes it has to go all the way up to the board level as well. And, and here's why. The board usually controls governance uh, of an institution, of an organization. And so they play a major role in helping shape how that organization is going to function, basically. Even though they're not in it and controlling day-to-day operations, they still have a really critical role. And so I would add on to that, that it's equally important for all members of the leadership team and the, the board members to have an understanding as well of the the different needs that are taking place within the organization. Like awareness is really key. And mm-hmm. I think just to add on to it as well, we talk about employee resource groups and those kind of things and just spaces where employees can connect with other individuals who have similar experiences. And I think those are important, but I think it's equally important to give those types of affinity groups and ERGs and the 
those kind of groups give them a voice. So if they come back with recommendations and say, hey, this is what we recommend to make campus more inclusive and equitable for black faculty, then be willing to listen. Right. Mm -hmm. And that goes back to Leah's point of we have to humanize the experience. Like we can't look at everything just from a business case. We have to think about the moral and the human case for how we treat people as well. That idea of, of lived experiences and I, and I'm, I'm looking at all of this through the lens of a, of an ally. I am not a black woman, as I, as I've said. And I think that it is when I see allyship in this time of pain, in this time of black women are not okay. I'm always searching for what is the role of an ally in this space. And what I'm hearing from from you all today is, first and foremost, if I have any relationship to HR, I need to be able to say, we need to do better by HR. If I'm, if I'm at the C-suite, if I'm at an executive level, I want to be able to turn to the other executives at the table and say, by the way, we have to stop getting in the way of this stuff. HR has to be able to do this work and we need a policy about this and we need to be able to manage this in a way that is ex- that is an example to the best practice, not a way to circumvent because we're worried that someone's going to get something out into the local newspaper that we have an issue or something of that nature. It's better to get ahead of it. The other thing I'm hearing from from you all, and I appreciate your statement about the the governance piece, is sometimes I find that depending on who has the political capital on a campus, that the govern the 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 trustees listen differently. Right. So I'm thinking about some people who I know who are vice presidents for student affairs or provosts who have a very different relationship with the the board of trustees than maybe even the chancellor or the president because they've been around longer. There's somebody that they actually know for a longer period of time or know in a different way. And if they say to the to the to the governance to the board, hey, Let's talk about this. We're, we want to have a, a really strong conversation about this and we want to be able to tie it to this. And here's the other thing. People who can speak to the boards of trustees or, or the board of overseers well oftentimes can connect it to what those people do on the outside of the institution. So if they run their own company, if they are a legislator or something like that, they're able to say, look, here's how it relates to the work you do and why it's so essential in the work we do. So I think from allyship, we need to be able to be process oriented, not speak for the experience of black women on our campus or minoritized folk on our campus. We can't speak for them because we are not them. We it is not our true experience, but we can say, where does our power lie? Where does our political capital lie? And how can we actually make things happen? Is there, is there an area for allyship that I might be missing that, that is kind of marinating in your heads? I hadn't thought about it that way. (laughs) I mean, when we think about allyship, I mean, I'm, I'm going back to civil rights stuff, the collective, allyship is joining in the collective moves the needle mm. now, i have to say to my students mlk didn't walk across that bridge in selma by himself ashley judd did not do me too by herself and so with allyship and with collective action we can push for policies that keep this kind of behavior 
from happening regardless of protected class. I mean, that's how the civil rights bills were passed in the 60s was collective action. We probably need the same kind of thing in allyship and collective action to end harassment for everybody. Yeah. And and I would add to that, too, if you look at any major movement in our history, it made me think of it because you mentioned the civil rights movement. If you look at pretty much any major movement, there were always allies present or mm-hmm. there were always allies in the background somewhere amplifying the cause or, or contributing, giving money, resources, time, whatever, whatever it is. However, they decided to devote their time to that cause. So a lot of change doesn't happen without the support of allies. And that mm-hmm. is a reality. And so that's why it is so important for us to to have allies supporting these kind of efforts. Otherwise, mm-hmm. it, it kind of gets lost. It, it If you don't have allies, it could seem like, oh, they're just complaining, right? But mm-hmm. when you have folks who recognize as a collective, this is a problem. We mm-hmm. have to implement some changes and, and implement them fast. Then you're a lot more likely to have some traction and actually see the change happening. And, and it's not speaking over right. or for, it's speaking alongside or it's, hi, glad you're all here. I'm glad, I'm glad you all uh, RSVP'd to my invitation. Now I'm going to hand the microphone. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm like, now, now I'm going to do this. Okay. As we're thinking about calls to action, we know that bottom line for many reasons, not only what's happening in the academy, but also what's happening in society turning our attention on black women, black women are not okay. And is it, what is the call to action that as you was thinking about coming on the show, what is the thing that you would, you think is important, whether it be related to bullying, whether it be related to workplace effectiveness or that idea of, of functionality within the space. And I want to give you both an opportunity to kind of give me your thoughts on what is you believe is your call to action. And and Leah, I'm going to start with you. We need policies on the state and federal level to prohibit workplace bullying. Mm-hmm. We need to follow what Canada and Norway and Sweden and France, I could go on, have done. We are probably the largest industrialized country that does not have these kind of protections for all employees. And what is a shame about it? We haven't even talked about the cost. Mm. Some of the studies I've done show that people spend about 3.9 hours a week strategizing around a bully. So what is that? Eight, two days, eight hours every two weeks. That's two days a month times their salary. And you just keep spiraling. It's easily eight to $9,000 per person, depending on their salary band. It's bad business as Mm. well. Want to be bean counters. But for some reason in higher education, we still want to rely on those older standards about I can say and do what I want because I have tenure. I can say and do what I want because I've been here forever. And that just doesn't work. You don't get grandfathered in as a tyrant. Mm -hmm. And it's a shame. I don't want another tragedy like this to happen before we really start looking at workplace bullying and the policies to prevent it. Absolutely. All the action is get those. And if you can't get it on the state level, you can certainly do it on your local level, on your it, your campus, mm-hmm. South Carolina, San Jose State, Wisconsin, these places have policies internal to their institution, regardless of their state, to prohibit workplace bullying. Alamo Colleges is another place that has an excellent policy. 
We need the policy to prohibit it and we need to adhere to those policies and protect everybody. Excellent. And I'm going to make sure that we get links to those resources and put them up in the show notes because I think people always, (laughs) this is a higher education podcast. People like links. Okay. MJ, what do you think your call to action might be? My call to action, especially for folks within the academy, is this is the time to really support and amplify Black women. I think about the work that Dr. Hollis is doing, and there's so many other incredible scholars who have been doing research in these areas for years. And it's just now kind of coming to light, like, oh, wow, this is a major issue. And what I thought was interesting, there was a a study done by a professor at Harvard University. I, I believe she's an organizational psychologist. And she did it specifically on the experiences of Black women. And the first thing I thought to myself is there are Black women scholars I know who have been doing research on this very thing for years, but Mm -hmm. because she was at Harvard, it got amplified. And I was like, Mm -hmm. I, I want us to be very intentional on amplifying the work of Black women as well. Mm -hmm. The the research, just we have Black women who are speakers who talk about some of these topics we're talking about, amplify Black women. I think that would be my call to action. And and I I I appreciate that. I, I love what you both have been saying here. And there's a little bit of truth of this that kind of, I always see these compounding statements. In the last few years, people have become more and more aware of the fact that more Black women die in childbirth than, than white women. And because they're dismissed in terms of their pain. It It's, pain can be physical, pain can be emotional. And if we are dismissing people dismissing other humans for something they are feeling physically or emotionally, that's problematic. And we need to understand that it's happening. It's happening in every kind of corner of our lives. And I think the work that both of you are doing is extraordinarily important. I'm going to give you all the last word. Is there anything else you wanted to make sure you got to say? If you're facing bullying, You are not alone. So many people are facing bullying. Do not isolate yourself. Find a counselor who works for you, not just any counselor you pick. Tell your family, tell your friends and your colleagues, because you'd be surprised how people will come and say, I have an opportunity for you. There's something for you. I can help you out. So often when folks are bullied, they hide in shame as if it's their fault. It's not their fault but please go get the help, go get the support. And it's not your fault, but don't stay isolated. Try to find somebody to help you and to commiserate with and get you out of a bad situation because bullying dyads end in one of two ways. The bully leaves or is taken out by the organization and that's rare or the target leaves. Say, I'm not putting up with this anymore. Otherwise it can go on for years. Please get some help, get some support and share your story. I think that's excellent. And just to add to that, I think, I think about Dr. Claudine Gay and a part of me, initially I was like, well, I hope she stays and tries to fight. But then I was like, I'm so glad she decided not to, because we know how it probably would have turned out. And I don't want to see another black woman dying all to fight a losing battle. Right. And so Mm Um, if you do get to that point where it becomes so exhausting that you simply can't take it anymore, it is okay to say, you know what, I am 
going to leave the situation, right? As much as we need more intelligent Black women in the academy and in different positions, just know that you can leave. Like, you don't have to feel obligated to stay, especially if it's related to your mental well-being. Your mental well-being comes first, and your emotional well-being comes first. So you do what you have to do and look out for yourself. Absolutely. Well, thank you both. This was a really important conversation, and I'm, I am honored to have you both here. Doctors, Mary McConnor and Dr. Leah Hollis, thank you both for being here. I am I'm in awe of you, and I hope you all have a wonderful day, and thank you for being here on Office Hours with Dr. DeBell. Thank you. Thank you. conversation was so timely and so important. I hope that it was one that made you think about what you can do to impact what is happening in terms of the culture on your own campus. Now, it's all our responsibilities to actually take action. Think of it as honoring Dr. Bonnie's legacy. I want to thank you for being an Office Hours listener. In order to grow our community, please rate, review, and share the podcast for your network. I would very much appreciate it. And hey, don't forget the show notes. There you will find more information about our guests, including how to reach out to them, how to engage with them, how to buy their books, and of course, details on how to follow me on social media and become a subscriber to my newsletter on Substack. Thank you to my wonderful producer, David Yaz. Office Hours is a production of Pod 617 Studios in Westwood, Massachusetts. Now, get, get out, out there and, and learn something. something.